Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Elizabeth Carney. I'm the chair of the club's Business and Leadership Forum, and your host for today's program, which is entitled Moral Leadership in a Time of Crisis, a conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. Also, I want to invite our audience to visit us on the internet at commonwealthclub.org forward slash online to learn about all the upcoming program events held here at the club and the extensive library of past podcasts. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers for today's program. Jacqueline Novogratz, founder and CEO of Acumen and author of the newly published Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, Practices for a Better World. And also Keith Yamashita, founder of SY Partners and also Q Collective. But before we begin our conversation, we have a wonderful surprise Elizabeth, thank you. And good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. In just a moment here, we'll be talking with Jacqueline Novogratz about her career and really her efforts to alleviate poverty across the globe. But before we get there, we wanted both Jacqueline and I to share something because we believe art and beauty matters in these times. So the tougher things get, the more it's important that we return to the human essential quality of art. And so um, Jacqueline and I have invited Brittany Coleman to join us together. Many of you know Brittany from her time on Broadway. She is a University of Michigan graduate from the prestigious uh, school there, one of the very best in the world. You've seen her in Sunset Boulevard, uh, Beautiful, the Cal King musical, and she was just a few rehearsals away from opening a company with Patti Lapone. And Brittany, in addition to being a singer on Broadway, volunteers and works for Sing for Hope, which is an organization that in these times is providing art and beauty in the places it's most needed in New York City and beyond. So Brittany is going to share with us a song to get started today. Brittany, thank you for joining us and the stage is yours. We're all going to go on mute so that everyone listening can hear you well. My pleasure. Feel free to sing along on mute as well. (laughs) Do... Do 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 when you're down and trouble and you need some loving care and nothing oh nothing is going right do 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 close your eyes and think of me And soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest night. Mm, You just call out my name and know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Oh, darling, winter, spring, summer, fall, all you gotta do is call, and I'll be there, yes I will, 
You've got a friend, do that do do do. Now ain't it good to know you've got a friend when people can be so cold. They'll hurt you, yes, and desert you. They'll take your soul if you let them. Oh no, but don't you let them. You just call out my name And you know wherever I am I'll come running, running, yeah, yeah To see you again Oh, darling, winter, spring, summer, or fall All you gotta do is call and I'll be there, yes I will. You've got a friend, oh darling, you've got a friend. Ain't it good to know you've got a friend? Ain't it good to know, ain't it good to know, ain't it good to know you've got a friend? Do, 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 do. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully that inspires a little bit of hope from our Carol King family to yours. Brittany, thank you. Thank you for spending time with us. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Jacqueline, let's let's dig in after that. That was such a gorgeous song. It um, takes me back to my childhood. Um, that was one of my mom's most favorite songs. And, um, you know, it's a tender moment, I think, for all of us. Um, you know, I've had a chance to watch you from Stanford Business School. I was just a class uh, right around that same time getting my master's degree. So I've seen you go from that MBA, um, you know, bright-eyed, uh, change the world, Jacqueline Novogratz, all the way through the founding of Acumen and entered today. And so I've seen your career and all of its twists and turns and the heartache of it and the accomplishment of it and the ambition of it and the the sadness of it at times. Yeah, this is this has not always been an easy journey. You know, could you start out? I just really have really not met anyone like you, um, and you're very hard to describe, um, and you're very hard to capture. But if you were to do your own kind of six-word biography, what what would you pick? I mean, it puts you a little bit on the spot, but um, you know, let's, let's start with with vibrant stuff. <laughs> Well, first of all, um, Elizabeth in Commonwealth Club, thank you so much for having yes, both Keith you. and me. And um, I can't imagine anyone better than you, Keith, uh, to get right to the heart of things. <laughs> it's such an honor. Let's dig in. Let's dig in. Oh, man. Um, I would say um, a hard-edged, compassionate fighter for dignity. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Um, very good off of the top of your head. Uh, hard edge, compassionate fighter for dignity. Start with the hard edged part because, you know, um, I've been with you many a time when you walk into a room and you always have a profound optimism. Actually, today's kind of rare. You're not wearing pink. You, you usually are wearing fuchsia or a very bright color. You, you light up a room. So it's interesting that you would pick hard edged as the first two words of your six word bio. Tell me more about hard edged. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think I do lead. I lead with color and with beauty and with joy. 
Um, maybe because Keith, I understand that underneath it, if we're going to create change, there has to be the hard edge. I actually think that this is a moment in history where we have to change even our very conception of what is soft and what is hard. You know, we grew up in a generation, Stanford Business School, where the hard skills were linear analysis, financial modeling, Black-Scholes theory. The soft skills were leadership. Um, the soft skills were design, human-centered design. And, um, and when you go through really hard times, and if you want to change the status quo, it will be hard um, I think you actually have to learn. I'm just going to go right there. No, that, go for it. That love is a hard skill. And anyone who has lost someone, anyone who has really suffered, understands that those are the times that require the courage, the grit, the steeliness that will fight for what's most important. Um, but we don't teach those skills as the essential skills of what it means to be human. And so while I've had to learn how to play hardball, while I've had to learn how to really see and embrace the ugly, um, so do I ferociously hold on to the possible and to hope. And so I get exhausted when I hear easy, bright-eyed optimism um, if it is not girded in the steely toughness of what it actually sure sure, sure. you know it's uh, you you come obviously from a very successful family your your brothers and sisters you you come from quite an accomplished family talk to me though about your grandmother you tell stories about uh where does this grit come from um take us back there for a moment because i do believe lineage here does influence lineage influence. matters it does matter yeah. and the stories we tell ourselves and you are one of the great storytellers of all time um you know, I actually had two grandmothers that, that had huge influence. I often speak about one for very specific reasons. But for a second, my grandmother, Loretta, um, who grew up in New York City, born and raised in New York, was actually a single mother, um, opera singer, but um, tough and gritty herself. And so she raised her husband died when my mom was a year and a half. So somehow she found a way to raise these two girls in New York. Um, the grandmother I always talk about is Stella, who came to the United States as an adult, the eldest of six sisters. We affectionately called them the six tons of fun. And um, and I think one of the things that made me resonate so deeply with African women, Keith, is that if I describe my grandmother to you um, without saying where she was from, you might think I was describing an African woman. She had nine kids, three died before they were five. She only got a third grade education when her parents left her in Austria as a child, like so many poor people have to do now. Um, she was kind of bandied about as a domestic servant in other people's homes, had one pair of shoes famously um, that she was only allowed to wear on Sundays. Um, and yet she had this deep faith, this deep ability to work, to show up a great sense of duty. And, um, and when she came to America, a belief that if she did all the right things, good things would happen. And so I see Stella everywhere. 
when I do my work. So part of your, we'll get your hypothesis of what you supported investment and in, uh, invest in in a moment. Take us to this last half of the phrase. So the first hard was hard edge. Play out the rest of the six word bio for me again. So it was, if I can remember it. Yeah, yeah. Compassionate, yeah. <laughs> Compassionate yeah, fighter for dignity. Um, because the, 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 again, I think the moral that we need to bring to the world today is not this set of rules imposed from above in a way that lets us off the hook, that the moral is this struggle, this, this holding of tensions of opposite truths. And so, yes, I'm a fighter, but what is it to fight to be right? Is that just to prove somebody else wrong? That fight has to come with compassion and empathy. So hard-edged fighter, compassionate fighter. And at the end of it, at the center of the moral framework that is an idea that's worth living for is dignity, is this idea that every human being deserves choice and opportunity and a chance to flourish. And that dignity is both self-worth, meaning each of us as humans know we have a fundamental right to be respected and included and seen, and that there's a dignity of being human. But it's also how we treat each other in that dignity. It's both a self thing and a together thing. Yeah, I think sometimes we talk too much about rights, again, without the opposite, which is our responsibility to one another. And in fact, if I were rewriting the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I think I would have a sister companion, which was our Universal Declaration of Human Responsibility. And that this kind of Mobius strip, that to be, to be able to claim our rights, we must live them through our treatment of others. And our treatment of others to ourselves is what makes it possible for us. Now, what's interesting is you say compassionate fighter, which are potentially to... Um, in, in this world, incongruent thoughts, compassionate and fighter. And then for dignity is an interesting thing because that isn't about gain. That's not about win. That's not about better than. It's, it's, a, it's a mutuality. Can you talk a, a little bit more about the mutuality of dignity? We talked a little bit, but go a little bit deeper on that thought. I think we were separated at birth, you and I. Um, <laughs> this is the big news of the show, Jacqueline, actually. <laughs> this, this is, this is the, the, re- the reveal. Yeah. The reveal. Yeah. The um, Asian Novogratz hashtag. Yes. Exactly. Well, I do think I did have a tiger mom uh, that could, you know, compete with the best of them. <laughs> um, the, I, I often say that the opposite of, of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is dignity. And so to your point, Keith, that, that all of this exists within tension. And somehow in our generation, we, we moved the word dignity into a category that almost felt trite. It was almost embarrassing for people to talk about. In fact, I, I spoke to about 800 um, heads of talent from the Fortune 500, uh, and we were talking about courage. And I was talking about the importance of practicing courage. And, the, and I said, so, you know, are there experiences where you all feel like you should be practicing courage? And this one man said, you know, I would never use the word dignity in my office. And I thought, where, how have we gotten to a place in our worlds where our heads of talent, whose job is to actually let 
the workforce see their own inherent dignity so that they can build companies that fulfill the company's purpose. If they're not allowed to use the word dignity, then we're in trouble. And that goes to this reclamation. But again, as you say, it's not an easy word. This is a well, word. I, I know it's one because I've, I've watched you and, and certainly in the pages of your book, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. Um, I feel you're able to acknowledge the term because of the heartache you've seen, but also the heartache in your own work um, that not everything always works out the first time. And I, my observation of you is you, you're able to own that word because it's earned. It is not, it is not, a, it's earned, meaning you've seen when dignity doesn't prevail. You've seen in systems when people let go, uh, get left behind. I, well, I see it constantly in my work all over the world, as you said, including in the United States, Keith. The, um, but where I understood, because I teach these the, to our Acumen Fellows all the time, and and a lot of us get tripped up on this, that first line of, you know, all, all men are created equal, all human beings are created equal. And someone will inevitably say, Jacqueline, seriously, we are not created equal. Some are born rich, some are born poor, you know, all the different ways that we are not equal. And I say to them, when you've seen what it looks like when one people decide another group of people is even slightly less human, then you understand that the idea of human equality has very little to do with our capabilities. All it has to do with is the very fact that we were born human. Because I lived in Rwanda before a genocide, and I watched very, very good people start to see other people as less than. And then I started to hear them use words like thing rather than person. Then I started to hear people talk about insects. They are cockroaches. Once you start to hear that, dignity flies out the door. And once we dehumanize, it becomes really easy for us to do terrible things to each other because we have forgotten that inherent dignity. You start out your book in a very powerful story with Folikula here in Rwanda and and this powerful story. Can you share just a little bit of that? Because that is, to me, this fundamental dignity labeling uh, degradation of human. Can you share just that story? I'll take you back into your draft. There's, you know, 280 pages here. So, you know, it's, it's impossible to recount with great accuracy every single page, but... Well, this story was imprinted on my heart. Um, And it's actually kind of even why I wrote the book in the first place. But, you know, when I was 25, I left Wall Street. I moved to Rwanda to help start a microfinance, the the nation's first microfinance bank with three women uh, who happened to be the first three women parliamentarians among my co-founders. And um, the woman, Felicula, um, was the most feisty. And shortly into our building of this bank, in fighting for women's rights, um, she got a bill passed that was wildly unpopular, including with women. And um, and a few days after this bill was passed. Even though the bill itself's intentions were quite powerful. Deeply powerful. It was essentially to eradicate bride price, which was the practice of, and still is a widely practice, practice of paying a father-in-law, a prospective father-in-law, three cows 
for his daughter's hand in marriage. And um, Felicia didn't want to see women reduced to chattel. And so she really fought to have this um, ended. They won. And um, then everybody kind of went crazy and the bill was overturned. And a few days later, she was killed in a hit and run accident. And, um, and I saw it by then I was probably all of 26 and I had to confront what it means for some people to go against the status quo. And then, um, the genocide happened and one, another one of our founders ended up after having fought to build a party based on multi-ethnicity went for power instead and joined the genocide party. And so I had to really confront what monsters exist inside all of us. And, um, and, and really so much of my work at Acumen and using market tools and other kinds of tools to solve problems derive from those early experiences in my life. But you fast forward literally 30 years almost to the month, I mean, to the week, same month, and I'm back in Kigali kind of wondering, I'm back, you know, here I am again. And um, I'm about to present to the president and his ministers this energy fund that's going to electrify the homes of about 10 million East Africans. And um, I clearly know the downsides now. I've gone through a genocide. I've seen an organization decimated. I've seen people be who I love to be murdered. And um, these accidents are not accidents. These accidents are not accidents. And a young woman walks up to me in a conservative blue suit and says, Miss Novogratz, I think you knew my auntie. I haven't gotten on stage yet. I said, really? What was her name? Um, and she said, her name was Felicula. And I just burst into tears. And, um, and I have to get on stage. And I say, who are you? And she says, my name is Monique. I'm the deputy general secretary of the central bank. And it just took my breath away because if you had told me when we were, when I was little, 30 years prior, that our tiny institution with big dreams to improve women's economic condition would in one generation have a woman running the financial system, I'm not sure, Keith, that I would have believed you. So the and talk a little bit about this because, you know, how does one go from young Stanford MBA. And, I, you know, just to contextualize for the audience, this was where 98% of the class went to Wall Street, many of them quantum, and maybe some others went to do entrepreneurship here in Silicon Valley. So your own choices of what you focused on even then were unusual. Can you tell us, you know, poverty and poverty, uh, helping people lift themselves out of poverty through these other tools, which we'll talk about more in a moment, has become your career. How does one walk toward that? How does that happen? How do, um, in a way, it kind of defies the training you had in your MBA coursework. So kind of, how does one end up there? And then we'll talk further about what happens after you choose it. Well, I had already chosen it before I went to Stanford. Um, I had actually already built that microfinance bank in Rwanda prior to Stanford. Um, I actually think that um, I chose it without understanding it from the time I was, you know, a, a little girl, six years old, if you will. I, I have this vivid memory of seeing uh, a poster on the wall of my little Catholic school um, that, that a lot of 
most Catholic kids of my generation probably remember the same poster of two hands holding a rice bowl um, where we would have to like think about the children who were starving in China. My father was in Vietnam for two years. He was in Korea for another year, probably about four years altogether when you add the extra months. And so I was deeply aware that children on the other side of the world had a very different experience just because of where they were born. And, um, and that was an imprint. And so then when I went to banking where I was an accidental banking banker, um, and I went to mostly Latin America, which were wildly unequal economies, it made no sense to me that low-income people had no places in the bank. And that was really the beginning, Keith, of the journey then to say, well, banking isn't that complicated. Here is all this vitality, all of this energy. Why wouldn't we make loans to people in their own country to build their own country rather than the loans we were making to so many elites that were many times just sending the money to the Cayman Islands and other tax shelters. And that was really what sent me as a young idealistic person um, through a circuitous way, circuitous way into Central Africa. In building the bank, I saw how alive I felt. I saw how much you could do. But I also felt that I needed more tools, that microfinance, these tiny loans that we were giving was important, but it wasn't enough. I wanted to learn how to build real companies that made Get, that created real jobs because we love myths. This is another part of your hard edge side, meaning it's it's like, yes, I'm trying to alleviate poverty. Yes, I'm trying to confront these major social injustices. And also, if you want to take me to task on how this works from a hard edge economic thing, I will go down to the nth degree of variable to talk to you about how this actually really works. And I actually like love it. <laughs> right. Actually, Keith, we already have a question coming oh, in that's kind okay, of relevant great. to this. Perfect. I thought I would post. It's from Jerry Mikowski, and it's for Jacqueline. And it says, could you tell a story of a moment when a person of privilege, you know, suddenly understood what dignity means? What's that? What's that process for them? Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, there are there are tiny processes close to home, but one of the one of the stories that um, most impacted a group of people of early acumen partners donors was I took them to India and my way of traveling as Keith can imagine, is not the easiest way. Um, and so I had dragged this group of Acumen donors early days um, after an all-night train on a bus for like four hours. It was probably 110 degrees. There was no air conditioning. And we went to see this drip irrigation like you see in Napa in California, like the, the, you know, the drip into uh, parched lands. And we went to go meet this one farmer's family, where um, our company had brought the drip and they were building uh, the, the foundation for a new house, but the family lived in a lean to. So just imagine like a tent, half a tent. And that's what they survived monsoons in everything. And the woman had been cooking all day for us. And she made the most gorgeous meal out of these vegetables that she'd been growing with the drip irrigation. And here I am with some of the wealthiest people literally on the planet. 
And I at first sensed this sense of discomfort. Like, are we, this woman almost has, she has nothing. The world sees her as a throwaway and we didn't bring any gifts. And yet she is offering us a feast. And I thought to myself, but that is what this is. So often the people we see who have nothing are willing to give us everything. And maybe all, we could all pause a little and think about what that reciprocity could look like. And I saw Elizabeth and Jerry, I saw full on transformation. And later that night, after having spoken to the farmers, another one said, and, and, and this wasn't said with any arrogance, but said, Jacqueline, those farmers are really smart. And I said, well, what do you think? Like they have to feed a family on like a dollar a day. They have to be smart. And they're like, no, I mean, like he understands math more than I do. And, um, and it was another, it was just this boom opening of human, the, the, the capacity that we have where we fall down is we don't extend capability. We think, well, we'll give you something and then just go do it. But we don't, we don't enable the capability so it can truly flourish. So I have a thousand stories of where I've seen without teaching or, or, um, or lecturing on, you know, goodness or what have you. I just let the, the story unfold and inevitably I think the the, the humility if we if we dare to pause and listen it's all there for us let me add something to that Jacqueline and let's go into the hypothesis of the book here as my dog goes wild hold on hopefully this is hard doing this from home we're all at home and Jerry thank you for the question it's nice to hear from you again um, the revolution we will ask uh, will ask all of us to shift our ways of thinking to connection rather than consumerism, to purpose rather than profits, to sustainability rather than selfishness. We must awaken to see workers not as inputs, the environment not as our personal domain, and shareholders not as all-powerful. We need to move away from old models of doing what is right for me and assuming it will turn out right for you. When you talk about moral revolution now, so 30 years into your adventure with a lot of grizzled knowledge, this is not uh, bright-eyed optimism only. This is now like tough lessons. Tell me more about that definition and the moral revolution you think might be possible for us on the planet right now. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, the not only do I think the moral revolution might be possible, I think it is inevitable um, and if we do not go there, then we we don't have a world. It just gets uglier and uglier um, than the world we want to create. And, and that starts with shifting the frame. For the last 30 years, we've had a system that has put profit at its center and that has seen success as money, fame, and power. And it's only when we shift to a system that puts our shared humanity and the sustainability of the earth at its center that we will create the kind of world that we can all flourish in. How do we get from here to there? The world is too complex to say, you know, big revolution from the top, you know, even though we would love to blame, it's the bad corporations, it's the, it's the greedy nations, it's, you know, it's all of us. And that is why I think that 
there is something for each of us to do that this revolution cannot come from above or even below. It has to come from within us. And there's a role for the corporates, for the private sector companies, for civil society, for government, for young people, especially in the way that they are such truth tellers. Um, here's, here's the way it looks. We start to look around at what our broken systems are. You find individuals that are willing to focus on the purpose first, not just the profit. Two kids out of Stanford Business School, actually, Keith, but they could be out of anywhere. I've seen kids coming out of slums with unbelievable ideas. And they decide that the fact that 1.5 billion people on this planet still have no electric access to electricity, this is 10 years ago now, 10 years ago had no electricity, was not only unproductive for the planet, not only unjust, it was immoral. And they decide that they're going to do something about it, but they don't have a clue. And frankly, as acumen, we don't really know either. Their customers make 2 $3 a day. They um, have no financing. There's no trust. These are newfangled um, technologies. Why should they trust them? Um, what exists is a lot of bureaucracy and corruption. And what we don't talk about enough um, are the stakeholders for whom the system really works. And when it comes to energy, it's the diesel and it's the kerosene operators because that's what people use when there is no electricity. Um, the same stuff we used in the 19th century. And so um, that's where investors come in with patient capital. You know, for Acumen, it's 10 to 15 year capital. The entrepreneurs have the grit and the resilience to listen a new set of skills to the poor, understand what the creatives like you, Keith, can help them design so that we can get things affordable enough so that the poor can afford them and value them without imposition our own values. And, and then you start to partner with corporations that are willing to use their supply chains to get these, these units to the very poor. And today, D-Light, this company now, has brought light and electricity to 100 million people. But there's a revolution in energy around it where right now we're looking at a sector of about 500 companies, 350,000 jobs just in Africa, and a real, a real um, argument to government that we cannot keep throwing billions of dollars into extending a dirty, outdated, almost bankrupt grid that is not fulfilling the moral revolution of putting humanity on the earth at the center, um, we need anti-fragility measures and we need ways that allow people choice and dignity. And we have it. You know, Jacqueline, it's so interesting. And each of the stories in your book has these qualities that the first two chapters here for your book is called Just Start and Redefine Success, right? And, and I read in those chapters, Just Start is a, this may seem so incredibly overwhelming. How could you possibly get involved with the systemic change while the only way it happens is you have to start? This, which sounds in a way like uh, you, you just got to get on with it. The second, though, about redefine success, and this is really is you change the landscape for what is valued, what is valuable, who participates, um, how success is defined. And it's on that that the experiment now runs. It's not that you are doing it on old metrics and old goals. It's better goals with more comprehensive uh, impact for people. But then I read down your chapters, and this is where I want to take our conversation next. I, I love that you call this practices to build a better world, 
First, tell me, what do you mean by practices? So you could have chosen any subhead for your book, but why practices? This work of change is hard and principles can help guide us, but none of us do any, none of us can really live those principles without practice. And so this is about. Uh, it's a noun and a verb. It's, it's a practice that is practiced. It's yes. really key, this understanding that, you know, we talk about moral leadership and it's a, it's a dangerous thing to say so-and-so is a moral leader. Um, there's a path to mastering the skills and attributes of moral leadership. And that is what we can all aspire to. But once we start calling people out um, in this way as a moral leader, I think we set them up to fall off pedestals and ourselves as well. And so this is about the practice of mastery. So this uh, question that's just come in seems really relevant to that. It's from Mona, and she says, what a beautiful story of Rwanda. Generations of women uplifting others' paths. How can we learn from this? How do we reshape our culture to value all the people, not just fed the wealthy as successful? Thanks, Mona. I mean, this is really the whole point of the book. And Keith goes back to just start and redefine success. I think it really does begin with our definitions of success. Who do we want to be as a world? And what are who are the role models that we lift? And so in terms of how we make this change, the, the media storytellers have an incredibly important role to play in lifting those role models who are releasing human energy um, that are supporting stakeholders. We talk such a good game of stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. We don't have enough models of those companies that are truly integrating the health of their employees and the planet and their customers. And, um, And yet they're there but they don't always look so successful from the outside. And that's where we can do a better job, both of lifting them and of being clearer, more transparent, frankly, um, a little bit more honest and vulnerable about what's working and what's not working Mm -hmm. so that we can restore trust. Because one of the reasons that we're not trusting these institutions is because we don't trust the leaders. And it's easy to say the leaders of these institutions are so stuck in the system. They are. But that is where we need the moral courage for people to take great risk. Build on that, build on that a little bit, um, Jacqueline, for, for Mona. Um, you know, your third chapter here is called Cultivate Moral Imagination. And cases is one part of moral imagination. But the spark of moral imagination comes from a what do you actually want to see in the world? Can you talk about that? Because your, your career has really been, I can see a world beyond the world we have. And that's the way this next world could work. How does one cultivate that as a practice? Well, so again, it's the, di- the, the diametric. It's the humility to see the world as it is. So that is a, a, the, the ability and the willingness to embrace even the ugly that we are dealing with, while also having the audacity to imagine what could be. And so if you see a broken industry or you see a broken political system around you, it's really easy to get stuck in the mire or cynical. 
it takes the moral imagination to see what could be. You take the chocolate industry, which is an industry so complex where I'm a lover of chocolate. It's a hundred billion dollar industry. 90% of the chocolate that is grown, the cacao, the beans that are grown, um, are grown by 5 million farming fam- families who make on average $2 a day. So you think about the, the brokenness just there, but who do you blame? It's only once we start to imagine an industry that pays the farmer fa- fairly, that restores the earth, that has a supply chain where there's greater transparency so that customers and companies and farmers and the, the middlemen along the way all can build a community of trust. The exciting thing is, is that's what we're starting to see. In the political sphere, Keith, I think of Jacinda Ardern. What's so fascinating to me about her moral imagination is that she understands the game of politics um, and she's not afraid to be strong. But again, we're having this bifurcated conversation of, is it, you know, are women better leaders? Are men better leaders? Jacinda has integrated the masculine and the feminine in ways that we can all aspire to. That when those horrendous attacks happened um, on the mosques in New Zealand, the soft, compassionate side of her fighter, the fighter, showed up at those mosques, hugged the women, veiled with respect. The tough fighter in her dared the media to say that guy's name, and no one did, took the guns back, created policy with clarity. And it was that integration that we all then as a world, this 37-year-old from a country of about 5 million people, we all wanted her to be a leader for us. And I watch her now through covid She's making really hard decisions. There is no right answer between health and livelihood. That's a moral question. That takes tremendous moral courage. And she may not be 100% right, but we trust that she is operating from a place of doing the best she can on behalf of other people, not her own career. How do Jacqueline, how do we create these later leaders in abundance? Meaning, um, what is the next step of this moral imagination? What is the next step to help uh, create this as a norm of leadership rather than an exception of leadership? Tell me your views on leadership development. And I know, I know Acumen Fund and the Fellows Program and a lot of leadership work you're doing is trying to scale this certainly in your sector. Tell, tell us about learnings. Keith, I, I actually think it, st- it starts with us. And, and that is also a part of just starting, you know, having met um, my mentor when he was 79 years old and, and seeing somebody that just kept renewing himself with a childlike curiosity about the world and being willing to take risk and fail and tell me what he learned from those failures was just an extraordinary role model. So I, I find it disheartening when I hear our generation so often say, what really gives me hope is the next generation because we're done. It's like, no, No. it's got to be. Not even close. We're not even close. We better work on cleaning up the mess that we created. And we better show the new generation that we are capable of change ourselves. So number one, leadership development has to start with all generations. The older generation has a special role to play, which is being much more honest about where we made a mistake, but not again in this like, 
we're ashamed of we're walking away. But we actually have insight into the answers because we understand yes. where they came from. Then this idea... Celebrate of, the reality of what is. Celebrate it. And find those, those people who are taking risk and instead of just knocking them down for something they did wrong or a word they said incorrectly, that we all have a little bit more humanity and we all have a little bit more patience in the way that we still say, look, we are not, there is no purity in this, in this world where we are trying to change in a mess. The second is then, the, my mantra at Acumen is role models, business models, and ethos. I am seeing, Keith, in every nation on this planet, and you know I work in many of them, um, yes. including in the United States. This is not States. secondhand knowledge. This is on the ground. On the ground. On the ground. By side with entrepreneurs. I meet incredible leaders who are not getting put on stages, but they are doing the work of the moral revolution. They are building companies using principles of the circular economy, putting the poor first, cleaning up the environment. We need to raise them as our as our heroes. Not that we need another hero, we don't. We need an army of all of us moving into our heroic selves. And then we need business models that that work like a delight, that integrate these principles. And then we need ethos. We need our, our, our universities. We need our business schools. We need our elementary skills to recognize that we cannot rely on teaching content. We have to focus on teaching character. And that requires a different set of skills and values that have to be rewarded. And before we go to possibly some of those sustainability or circular economy kinds of concepts, there's a question that's come in that is that your book is full of women and men that you've worked with over the years. Would you tell us about some of the people and their stories that changed you on the inside, that changed due to their commitment or passion or leadership? Such a beautiful question. That is such a beautiful question. First of all, they all change me in one way or another. Um, I always tell stories of companies because that's what Acumen does. But um, in this moment where Acumen, where America's prisoners are so vulnerable to COVID and it is so easy for us to dehumanize um, our prisoners, I want to tell a story about one of our fellows named Teresa Njoroge, who is um, Kenyan. And... um, and she spent her life really chasing um, the metrics of success pushed on by her family. Um, and she became a, a very successful banker. And then um, she got her company got caught in a, in a fraud. And she was kind of the fall guy for a crime she knew nothing about, did not commit, um, but was the, the woman that got nailed with the crime. And because she was innocent, she somehow still trusted that her innocence would prevail as she went through the legal system. So, you know, the first, the first um, man in the system who came to her said, look, we can get you out for 10,000 shillings or about a hundred dollars. And she was like, why would I pay? I'm innocent. I don't want my name connected. And um, 
over the next couple of years, the court system just got more and more uh, heavier, layered, until uh, right before her court date, it was about $50,000, which she did not have anyway, but she still could not believe that she was going to be put in jail for a crime she did not commit. And of course, she was with her three-month-old baby for a year. And so here was this incredibly well-educated woman who had done all the right things in her life, put into jail um, with her tiny child. And, um, and when she was in the prison system, she started to understand with humility the world around her and that all of these women in her prison, it was a women's prison, um, were there sometimes because they committed petty crimes, but often that these were, these were crimes of the system as well, the broken health systems and education systems, family systems. And so she decided that when she came out, there was nothing she could do about the, what life had given her, but that she could choose to respond in a way that was full of mm. compassionate fighting power. And so she started an organization um, that works to um, change the prison system in Kenya and increasingly internationally and help people transition into jobs um, and help individuals be, to Keith's word, seen for their full humanity. And I, you know, Teresa likes to quote Maya Angelou, who says, I come as one, but I stand as 10,000. And um, for me, she represents, again, that we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we definitely get to choose how we'll respond to it. Yeah. And, um, and all the different characters in this book, many of whom have had the kinds of lives we can't imagine almost, um, just have light coming through um, in ways that teach and transform me more than any fancy teacher uh, might ever be able to do. Mm. Jacqueline, can you add another story, which is, you know, uh, because Acumen Fund does invest and you're a patient investor, but it's not just perfect without profit. Like it, you do try to build self-sustaining businesses. Tell some stories of heartache, grizzled knowledge, failures that given the wisdom you have some 30 years later, you would have done differently. Help us understand how you how you approach things that do not work out. You know, I always forget to say the top side. Um, and um, and so before I go into the failures, I just want to make clear that this approach, which can sound grizzled and hard, and it is is what can move the world and break the status quo. And so when I also think about the fact that we're a fairly small community, four or 500 donors and investors that are surrounded by, you know, we've invested in about 130 companies and 700 fellows, um, that has re released the energy of companies that have brought critical services like water and healthcare and, and housing and health and nutrition and education to over 300 million of the world's poor. We've moved a billion dollars into markets where the world didn't see opportunity, failed to see the dignity. So the, the change is possible and the change is real. And I think that is what has given me that hard-edged confidence, Keith, um, to talk about with greater vulnerability 
the hard stuff that gives the grief. Well, and, and, and I think what I'm getting at, and I think you're headed in this direction, Jacqueline, it's um, the failures or setbacks are not the exception. They're the essential ingredient to getting it right. And I've seen you stick with an idea or a thesis over multiple rounds until you find the combination. So go there, because to me, it is not shame and failure. It's without these, you could not get to 300 million. You could not. Yesterday, I said, I I saw, you know, and you have this too, pattern recognition, where I I, I was um, proposed a company that just had too many of the patterns where I was like, I know the numbers all look right, but this pattern that I'm seeing in this company is making me think that you got to go back and check those numbers. And they came back and they were like, how did you know? Um, it's like, you know, I know because I've been there. So I would say keep the easy, the easy failures to talk about are the technical failures where we, we bet too early when some, a fancy engineer has come to us with the perfect technology for a water filter and nobody wants to use it. Those are easy you know, shame on us. Now we don't do those. Meaning the social, the, the social story around it or the social norms around it doesn't permit it or the spread of it as a, I don't think we do this as much anymore, but too often in our universities in the West um, and our business schools, we start with the idea that we, the student or the engineer has for how to fix the world. And then the expectation is it's so brilliant. um, I will now impose it on a community that has, you know, that the community values beauty and status and affordability and accessibility. And if it, it doesn't meet those requirements, and experience. And they're yes. not going to use it. So yes. that those were hard enough to learn. Um, there was a whole second category of um, how important it was. And I think this also goes to the woman's question to accompany our entrepreneurs. Yes that the stresses and the difficulties of doing this work are so enormous that it's very easy for entrepreneurs to give up, walk away, fear success, sabotage themselves, and that we had to learn that whole set of skills. And we didn't just have to do post-investment support. We actually need to accompany them. The ones that are most um, painful to me personally are the betrayals, the corruption, um, the um, the back the multi the multi the multitudes part. Well, and the other thing is, and this and this is a question from a uh, from a viewer is what has happened to us that we think of moral leadership as a hallmark of a great leader. That's to your question about yeah. Well, uh, uh, I don't know who asked that question, Elizabeth, but. You know, one of my dreams is, yeah. is that, Brent, um, Brent, well, thank you, Brent. One of my dreams, <clears throat> Brent, is that um, we are in a moment where we have all these modifiers, patient capital, impact investing, social enterprise, moral leadership. The day that we're just investing and real investing is measured by the value that we bring to society the way we clean up the environment and treat our employees and the energy we release, not just how wealthy the shareholders get, will be a really great day in my book. Um, and so I actually think in this moment we have to reclaim language. And um, and that is why I think we're ready for this idea of moral revolution. 
of the reclamation, but also the renewal and the reset into the future. Because it's one thing to look at the ancient values and the values of the past. We can't just impose them in the way they were practiced in the past. We live in a different world. Now we live in a networked, interdependent world with the multiplicity of religions and importantly, non-religions, different cultures. To navigate that requires many, many different forces. And so the leaders of the 21st century must have this skill set, this vulnerability and humility, but also a courage to say the truth, to take on systems that do not want to be changed, but need changing, but in a way that all of us can see ourselves in and want to participate in. The good news is I'm seeing it everywhere I look. I really am. And this moment that is such a painful moment of so much loss and so much uncertainty and so much isolation is also a moment where more and more of us are recognizing that we have it within us to imagine and, and move toward, recreate the institutions that will build a renewed world um, that will look very different um, and better than the one that we are hopefully leaving. Well, this brings me to my next question, <clears throat> probably final question, and I wanted to pose it to each of you. Um, I mean, we talk about the sustainability of the earth. We talk about this moment in time where we've been given this pause in the world of change making in order to bring in a new world. We have to be doing our own inner work as well as our interpersonal work, our outer work. What advice do you have for each of us so that we can bring in the world that wants to be born? I'll go first, Jacqueline, so you could have last word because I think the audience wants to hear from you. You know, um, I was shared a concept which probably I should have learned learned earlier in life, but I didn't learn it until this week, which is that the Greeks had two ways they talked about time, chronos and kairos. Chronos is calendar time. And certainly in the West, we're very much ruled by calendar time. Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 10.15, Zoom call it, 10.43 until 11.22, um, and in times of distress, which I think is the time we're in, the temptation is to hyper-control Kronos. Kairos, and those of you in the audience who are better educated than me will correct me, but my understanding is Kairos is felt time. It's emotional time. It's meaningful time. The last five minutes holding a loved one's hand before they pass is worth more in that five minutes than an entire year doing Kronos time. I think our secret right now is we have to find more time for Kairos. We have to find meaningful time to be contemplative, to connect with people who matter, to connect with the ideas that matter, because it's Kairos that's going to make this next world possible, not more Kronos. Keith, that was beautiful. And, um, and I think for anyone who needs renewal, um, Keith holds, hosts something called This Human Moment on Fridays, which is an hour and a half of just pure beauty and, and, and Kairos time. Um, and so, Keith, thank you for everything that you do. It's such an honor to be with you. And 
if I didn't think we were separated at birth now, there, it's just not, there's no doubt. Because there's also um, an American anthropologist named Edward T. Hall, who wrote a book um, called The Rhythm of Life. And he talks about how um, there are polychronic people and monochronic people. And often the West, um, as you said, you know, the, the monochronic people organize their lives according to uh, time and polychronic. And, and it's one, his theory, even when he wrote this book many decades ago, was that women tend to be better at polychronic because they have to deal with their children. They don't think in transaction because if their children and child is sick, they have to deal with that sick child while they also are trying to meet with the chronological time. But his theory was that people who worked on polychronic versus monochronic were destined to find each other in the world. So there we go. But I would, I have a chapter in my book called the beautiful struggle and the whole idea, this is a, it's a phrase from Martin Luther King, um, which he used at the very end of his life where he talked about the long and bitter, but beautiful struggle um, for human rights and a better world. And, um, and I've always loved that phrase because I think, and Keith, I think this is what you've been getting at this whole conversation. The work of change is long and hard. It can be sometimes decades long and sometimes lifetimes long. And, um, and yet within it, there is such extraordinary opportunity for beauty, which is something we don't talk about. Not only in the beauty of paying attention, the beauty of listening, the beauty of these moments of contemplation that Keith, you're talking about. Um, and that it is for all, we all define beauty in different ways. We all find ways to um, regain the sustenance that we need to keep moving forward. For some of us, it's religion and back to you know people who have changed me. I think of Jane colleagues who feed the birds in the morning to remember that we're all connected or a young Muslim colleague who says that when he bows to the ground and, and puts his head on the ground, he, remi he reminds himself that he is part of the earth and everything in it, that there are, again, going back to practices that can ground us even as we do the hardcore work of investing and fighting the right fights and in hiring and sometimes firing, making decisions that feel sometimes anything but moral, anything but soft. And yet it is in that interplay of hard and soft where we will find ourselves. And in that finding of ourselves, I think we come home to who we really are. And maybe that's the deepest basis of moral revolution. Um, because if we each practiced just a little bit more of that, whether we're in the corporate world or government or the private sector or we're in a nonprofit, then the world has no choice but to move away from inequity and environmental disaster toward inclusion and sustainability and justice. When moral leadership becomes everyday leadership and billions move, that's when things change. Very profound, Jacqueline. 
Thank you. Well, I think that puts us nearly at our time, Elizabeth. Unfortunately, we're up against Kronos today. And we can't. <laughs> That's always uh, the problem with me and Keith, Elizabeth. <laughs> and, and some of the other questions of Susan and David we'll leave on the table for next time. But really, I want to thank Jacqueline Norvagratz and Keith Yamashita for bringing Kairos today, a chance to pause and think about these bigger questions. And I think we all take away um, feeling changed by your comments. We want to also thank our audiences here at the club and our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightenment, is adjourned. Thank you all for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.